Prepare yourself for the terror. The prison of madness where few enter and none return. Welcome to Unsung Horrors. With Lance. And Erica. Leave all your sanity behind. It can't help you now. Welcome back to another episode of Unsung Horrors, the podcast where we discuss underseen horror movies, specifically those which have fewer than 1,000 views on Letterboxd. I'm Erica. I'm Lance. And before we jump into the movie that we're going to be talking about today, I did want to share some updates about The Strangler uh, from a couple episodes ago. Mm-hmm. We actually had a woman reach out to us, Larissa, on Instagram, and uh, she's been heavily researching Victor Buono, the star of The Strangler, for some time, and she actually shared some additional information about him. Um, so I'm just going to read what she sent us in a DM verbatim here. And she said, unfortunately, Victor wasn't very fond of the two horror movies in which he had the lead, The Strangler and The Mad Butcher. I'm sure he had fun doing them since he was always very fun motivated when it came to the roles he took, but he was aware they were not great art and he wasn't proud of them like he was like he was on other projects of higher caliber. He didn't embrace these types of flicks and publicly barely mentioned them. Another reason he made them was probably because he had to take a lot of roles because of the money. He was a middle child and had two brothers and their grandma lived with them And they basically had two adopted kids as well. When his father went to prison because he had been involved in a mafia murder, Victor was just 21. I'm curious about the mafia murder. Yeah. Yeah, Larissa, that's great. I wish I wish I like did more research on Buono's life to get I mean his life, like it's its own podcast. Yeah, for sure. That's a great subject to be studying too. Yeah, for sure. And she's also a good artist too. Oh yeah. On her Instagram. Awesome. Yeah. She's got some great work on there. So she also wrote, he had to return from his university where he studied acting and be the breadwinner for the whole family. In the late 70s, he said there were several parts he had to take simply to support his parents. Also, he had an agent who was embezzling money around uh, the late 60s. So a main reason he accepted the role in The Strangler was because from the money he was able to buy a beautiful big house in Encino where he moved the entire family and where they lived the majority of the 60s. Uh, He also quipped it was because his name would appear above the title, which it does in the posters. Mm -hmm. She said, you two talked about that the movie was relatively tame in its horror aspects, and that is mainly Victor's fault. He was always a man with strong convictions and morals and didn't agree with several things in the script. Yeah. I've read the correspondence between his agent and the production company before filming started, and he requested over two dozen changes. Victor let them take out implied necrophilia and Kroll... And Kroll was also supposed to be impaled when he falls out of the window at the end. So we did talk about like, there might've been some implied necrophilia there right. with like the dolls. So yeah. <laughs> and I did read too, that Bono did specifically ask, you know, the scene where uh, the lady gets into the shower mm-hmm. and he kills her, I think with the stocking or something, but uh, they wanted to actually show her nude. Right. And he did not want to be a part of that. Yeah. So they made a lot of concessions for him. So Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, during filmmaking, he went on strike when they were supposed to shoot the nudity, like you just, just said. Mm. He walked up the set and the production had to be halted. Uh, that was expensive and they gave in and took the nudity, nudity out. Uh, he did damage his reputation somewhat with that. 
I've read an interview with Burt Topper decades later about the making of the movie, and even though he did admit that he got along with Victor and he was good, he kept taking jabs at him and mocked his way of acting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Yeah. So thank you again, Larissa, for for sharing that information. Yeah, it's awesome. All right. Uh, So time to go in a very different direction. This episode, we are going to be talking about Ruggiero Diodato's Dial Help from 1988. Her phone doesn't stop ringing. Hello? But now... Who is this? Jenny's made a very bad connection. Ah, hello? And no operator in the world... What's going on? ...can help her. Some kind of sick joke? Dial Help. Through the streets of the city, on the subway, in her own bedroom, she's being stalked. Crazy. Completely crazy! Someone is invading her life, Mama. sending her messages, Where are you? killing her friends, and cutting off all communication with those... You can help her. Dial help. Come on. In case of emergency, don't touch that dial. Whatever you do, don't go near the phone. Yes. Our first Diodato. Yes. Probably our only one, too, given the rest of his form. Well, washing machine probably has. I didn't check the views on that. Yeah, I think he did. Phantom of Death still was under 1,000. I think Ballad and Blood. Mm. Have you seen that? I I didn't finish it. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about it. <laughs> um, all right. So right now the film is available in Daily Motion on two parts. I did find a video for the title song, Baby Don't Answer, um, yes. on on YouTube. And the video was really great. And someone made a comment on there like, hey, this video looks this looks great. Where I've only seen like rips of this. Where where'd you get this? And Somebody else commented that they thought that there was a Blu-ray release in Europe, which I didn't find anywhere. So I don't know how true that is. Huh. Unconfirmed. Anyway, if you want to watch it now, Daily Motion in two parts. And as of this recording, it has 420 views on Letterboxd. So a quick summary of Dial Help. English model Jenny is living in Italy, and she doesn't know how to take a hint from a guy, Marco, who ghosted her. And she stops at every phone in the vicinity to try to reach him. At one point, she dials the wrong number and ends up calling a now out of business love line. The telephone on the other end becomes infatuated with Jenny and starts killing anyone she cares about, including her fish, as well as anyone it perceives as a threat to her. Poor fish. Yeah. <laughs> when that happened, I knew bad things were going to I know. Going to start. The dog makes it though. Yeah. Ricardo goes back. That's I'm going right. to talk about how much I love Ricardo because okay. he saved the dog. <laughs> All the characters in this are worth talking about. <laughs> they are <laughs> so weird. All right. So getting into some of the film specifics, as mentioned, this was directed by Ruggiero Diodato. Uh, he got his start working with Roberto Rossellini, uh, later worked with Margariti and Sergio Corbucci. Uh, so he had about 60 films as assistant director before he really started helming his own films. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't consider himself a horror movie director, nor does he consider his cannibal movies, horror movies, which I, I actually agree with. Like, I think cannibal movies, especially cannibal Holocaust 
are, yes, what you're seeing is horrific, Mm -hmm. but they're in their own sort of genre, you know? Yeah, I agree. Like they're not meant to scare you in any sort of way. It's more, he, he talks a lot about in like, we'll probably talk about like the documentary um, uh, about him, but he talks a lot about realism and how he likes to portray realism. And that's what a huge part of cannibal Holocaust was for him. Like he did a lot of research through like national geographic and other stuff before really starting his, his cannibal films. Right. Yeah. That's what I remember reading. And, and he learned realism from Rossellini specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I could see that with cannibal. I mean, like you said, he, he, he uses like real natives too, and the real culture and the real language and everything. So yeah. I think he treated it more as like, a learning experience. And he said he's not a fan of gore, which yeah. I get, but you know, later in his career, he obviously turns to a lot of that. Yeah. And then there's the cruelty to animals thing, which is hearing him discuss it. Like he, I think he, it, it seems like all those animals were used and were going to be killed at some point by the natives. They were used as like, a, I think the turtle he said was a wedding gift. Mm-hmm. The, the crocodile and, and uh, jungle Holocaust was was eaten. Yeah. Like know. they ate all of the animals that were killed. And, I, and obviously, you know, I don't want to see it. Right. You know, but you know, I can't say anything. Cause like I try my best to not eat meat whenever I can. I know you're a vegetarian, yeah. but like, you know, what's happening here is, is no different than what happens in fucking slaughterhouses. Right. Exactly. So, and if anything, like these are people who are like, this is their only means of finding something to eat. And so, these are the true yeah. elements, these, you know, cannibal Holocaust and, you know, it's sexually fictionalized and scripted sure. to a point, but yeah, the animal killings are, it's their way of life. You know, it's, right. it, it doesn't offend me as much as just somebody just killing a chicken because they wrote it in the script, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Or someone taking a fucking rifle out to go hunt a deer so they can put the head on the wall. Right. Assholes. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm sure most people are familiar with a lot of Diodato's filmography, you know, there was a few that were that I hadn't seen before getting ready for this episode. Um, yeah. Ones I had seen before, obviously Cannibal Holocaust, uh, Cut and Run, Raiders of Atlantis. I had not actually watched, but I thought I had seen it. But then I started watching. I was like, oh, no, I watched another post-apocalyptic Italian movie that I thought was this. And so, <laughs> um, but yeah, that one's that one's a lot of fun. Oh, I love that one so much. And, and, and Diodato <laughs> even says like, he had a lot of fun doing it because there was absolutely no script. Oh yeah. Day to day it was written and you could see it. <laughs> yeah. It has everything. It, yeah. I think in the June exploitation episode too, I had mentioned what was it? Petey Wheatstraw was mm-hmm. like the Raiders of uh, Atlantis or what else is it called? Atlantis interceptors. Uh-huh. Um, and the house of like black exploitation, because those three movies to me are just so wild and has, they have everything. Yeah. At least one thing will appeal to someone. Exactly. Watching this. There is something for everyone in that movie at some point. Yeah. Did you watch, uh, have you seen his Barbarians movie? I didn't. And I could, because I saw that you had watched it yeah. and it wasn't streaming and there was a Blu-ray <laughs> and I was like, I'm sure Lance owns this. So I'll just borrow it from him. Uh, yeah. I came out last year from Kino. I bought two copies, one for me and my twin brother. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Peter Paul and David Paul. Uh, we watched the Barbarian Brothers movies all the time as kids. Barbarians was like our number one. I'm probably most familiar. That's my most like quotable Diodato film. Like I've seen that one the most for sure. (laughs) And then they also had the Think Big movie, which we watched all the time. They did a couple more later, like Twin Sitters, which- That's going to be a weird Wednesday this month. Twin Sitters? Yeah. I've never seen Twin Sitters actually. 
That'd be a good one to go to. There you go. We saw them in person when they, uh, at Draft House, I don't know, this was like the early 2000s. Uh, they filmed or, or they programmed Barbarians and uh, Peter Paul and David Paul were there. We got a little poster signed and oh my God. we just totally twinsed <laughs> out. Like it was, <laughs> it was too much, That's but I really love cool. the Barbarians. I, I imagine so. Yeah. I, I wanted to watch it. So I'll, I'll just borrow the Blu-ray from you. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Body Count, which I watched, I think, last year or the year before. I like. Yeah, okay. It's, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, House on the Edge of the Park with David Hess and my favorite, Giovanni <clears throat> Lombardi Radici. Not for everyone. That one's mean. It's very mean. <laughs> and it's, yeah, that I, I picked that up with from Severin with their Black Friday Nasty Bundle, which mm-hmm. also included Ballad of Blood, Diodato's Battle, Ballad of Blood. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, since you brought it up. Yeah. I watched... About 20 minutes of it. I did not finish it. Yeah. It's exactly what the first 20 minutes is. I mean, it's. Oh my God. I'm glad I didn't finish it then. I couldn't. I, it's a movie I can't rate. It's one of those movies that it's just like, it's terrible, but it's definitely, a, it's a 2016 movie, I think. Yeah. Or 15. And it's, uh, it, it feels like it, but it is so weird and bizarre and strangely edited and scripted it scripted that I kind of loved it. I Maybe it's, I'll try it again, but I... It's bad. I, I no was denial. very frustrated watching it, so... Yeah, it has that kind of cast and dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mentioned The Washing Machine. Uh, we talked about Phantom of Death as well. Yeah, I just watched that. Uh, it, it was okay. I yeah. mean, Michael York is kind of overacting like he does a lot. Yeah. The whole cast is, really, except for Donald Pleasance, who... <laughs> He's like asleep the whole time and he's just basically like, I'm just going to play Loomis. I just want to catch the killer. (laughs) Uh, Good, good effects though. Good makeup. Yeah. He does a great, great face makeup on that one. Yeah. Uh, I did watch waves of lust for the first time, uh, which had actually Diodato's wife at the time was the star of that. And this one, uh, it didn't come up in the episode, but when we did our episode on Patrick still lives, Mm-hmm. We talked about, you know, is this movie the most J and B that any movie has ever J and B'd? And you know, we asked that question on Instagram, and there's a uh, Instagram account J and B in the movies who only posts pictures from of J and B in the movies. It's hence, great, yeah. And uh, so we actually asked them, and they said, no, it's probably Waves of Lust. And yeah, I think they're right. Oh wow, there's a lot of. It's not so much like just bottles everywhere. It's that the main, one of the main characters is just constantly chugging it. Like there's barely a scene without that, without him drinking jam. Is it John Steiner? The creepy kind of narrow face guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. Um, Waves of Lust was good. I mean, it takes, it's more of a like sea based thriller. It takes a little bit of a while to get going, but I, I enjoyed it. I added that one to my watch list, but I didn't get to it. I can send it to you if you want. Yeah, I mean, that's why I didn't get to it. Okay. <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of porn sites popping up when I searched this. <laughs> Weren't they already bookmarked? Well, <laughs> some of them, like, I still have that bookmarked. <laughs> um, so Diodato's other cannibal film, Jungle Holocaust, a.k.a. Lost Cannibal World. I watched that one for the first time, I think, a year or two ago. It has a child kill in it, that's why. But Yeah, I did note that. Uh, yeah, I had never seen it either. And I watched that a couple weeks ago. I like it. It's good. But when you compare it to cannibal Holocaust, it's like, it, yeah. it's not on that level. Yeah. It's still about like cannibalistic stone age era natives. A lot of the same kind of 
uh, scenes and stuff mm-hmm. with animal cruelty and, and you know, the, they're cannibals. Yeah. I just love how Diodato just comes out swinging like for his first, like real horror movie. Yeah. Cause that's like groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, I know you watch this one too. Live like a cop, die like a man. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I felt like the script, the scripts was written by Fernando de Leo who did, you know, Fistful of Dollars, Django, Caliber 9. Yeah, I mean, um, he's got plenty of his own director, great yeah. Tachi movies. But so. I feel like the script was a little too much for Diodato to handle. Yeah. And, you know, he a lot of his movies that he just nails and are, you think of Diodato are the ones that he writes for the most part. Yeah. This one, like, I mean, I kind of like the cops, like what assholes they were, but they like, I usually like to root for the assholes and I don't want to root for cops. So except unless it's like Franco Nero or Maurizio Merli, like that's pretty much it. Speaking of Franco Nero, I have to applaud Ruggiero for almost, I guess, contributing to making Franco Nero famous. Yeah. Because he found, or he suggested Nero to Corbucci for the Django. Yes. He wanted, uh, who did he want? He wanted Mark Damon. Mm -hmm. That's who it was. And uh, Diodato had worked with Nero before on a Margaretti film, and he suggested Franco. And Corbucci was kind of hesitant at the time. Yeah. But he asked his wife, who's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, yeah. ask anybody. <laughs> ask any woman specifically, but ask any man. Like, he's He's got the look. Oh, yeah. Cast him, Sergio, please. <laughs> and that was all because of Ruggiero. I wish Diodato did a Western. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah, because he did a comedy western called In the Name of the Father in 1969, but it's a comedy and what he does with his Holocaust films and all the elements and realism Mm -hmm. and what he contributed to Django, like the dragging the coffin was apparently his idea. I don't know. All the mud, you know, keeping the mud, the town real muddy. I think he could have nailed like a revenge western. Totally. You watched um, one of his his actual first directing films, the... uh yeah, phenomenal and the treasure of Tutankhamen. How was that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it was. It, I had fun with it. Like, I enjoyed it more than you know some of his other movies. It's basically a, a 007 ripoff. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I think I know. I think this like a studio. You know, he was hired for this job, and he went out to to film it just to kind of get experience as one of his first or own directorial debuts. I think mm-hmm. it was after Gung, Gungula. This might have been his first feature with Kitty Swan. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's like a globetrotting crime adventure. Phenomen- Phenomenal is barely in it. He's like this masked, has like a black stocking on his face that you know, no eyes are cut. You know, it's just this, he, he looks like a giallo killer. Sweet. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I had fun with it. Okay. All right. So we kind of mentioned about Diodato's films being better when he writes them himself. Um, he did co-write Dial Help along with Joseph and Mary Cavara. Uh, this is their only collaboration together, though. <clears throat> this was edited by Sergio Montanari, who also did Revolver, Django, Star Crash, Kotze's Hercules, Lance's favorite. Yeah. And a film that we covered on a previous episode, Spider Labyrinth. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, cinematography by Renato Tafuri, who also did Stage Fright and The Church, Michele Suave's masterpieces. Yes. Well, and Stage Fright more so, but. I love them both. I do like Stage Fright better. Yeah. <laughs> That's the right <laughs> answer. And then the score we mentioned uh, last episode uh, by Claudio Simonetti or Gobl- of Goblin. And yes. he also did the opening song 
You're not baby gonna- don't answer, baby don't answer the telephone. <laughs> I mean, my favorite part of that, I mean, this score, let's just say it up front, it fucking shreds. <laughs> it's it's fucking heavy. It has like crazy 80s electric guitar solos going on, double bass, drums. <laughs> I mean, it, it has everything you want from like an 80s album. I mean, overall. Yeah. My favorite part of that opening song, though, is that spoken word ending. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, the Vincent Price and Michael Jackson's Thriller. Mm-hmm. No one's safe in their solitude. You can't even stay at home. Danger lurking everywhere, even on your telephone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so good. Uh, but yeah, I love this score. Yeah, this is why it needs a, a proper release. Plus, with the For soundtrack sure. as well, that would be... Fantastic. So we also, we've mentioned a few facts about the production itself. And a lot of that came from a documentary called Diodato Holocaust. And one of the things that came up in that is that, you know, he got to choose his cast for this film, which isn't always the case. Usually producers have a lot of say in that. And he actually rejected Uma Thurman for the role of Jenny. Yes. I found that very interesting. Yeah. I mean... Charlotte is perfect in this because she is so very dumb. She is very dumb. I mean, and, and actually I think there, there's a lot of scenes too, where, I mean, the whole time you're thinking is like, why is she doing this? Like, why doesn't she yell for help? You know, there's a lot of what's going on here, yeah. but that's the whole tone of the movie. It's so weird. And I think she just nails her reactions and her emotions perfectly. Yeah. Like <laughs> she knows the character. She knows she's, dumb and doesn't make sense. And she just goes for it. Yeah. I'm dumb and I know it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then there's also the book that Lance got for me for my birthday that you also have. Yeah. And so the, the book is primarily about cannibal Holocaust, but there is a little bit on this book. There's a very short review about it. And then there's a long interview with Diodato in the beginning, but most of that is about cannibal Holocaust. And there's literally like one small paragraph about dial help. Yeah. But he does at least say in that uh, he calls it a delicious fantasy uh, and that hard horror is not really my genre, but you know, he does have this sort of fondness for this film. Like he does really enjoy what it is. I mentioned who the cinematographer was on this already. And what I thought was interesting, uh, what I thought was an interesting comparison in the review in the book was comparing it to a late eighties music video. For sure. Cause it definitely has that like hazy look to it. It feels like every scene, especially Jenny played by Charlotte Lewis uh, whenever she's just uh, just doing anything, and, and usually some sort of rock music will kick in. It'll be silent. It's like the setup for any '80s music video. Mm-hmm. You know, the girl gets off a train, and "Welcome to the Jungle" starts. You know, <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it. It yeah, it feels like a music video. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing I did want to bring oh, up sorry. about the production was the location yes. that was in Diodato Holocaust, the mm-hmm. the documentary where he said that it was shot in a in a hotel in L.A. The same place where Pretty Woman was filmed. That's right. Yeah, I remember which that. Which is interesting. He seemed very excited about that. Yeah, that link. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's that's the uh, six degrees of uh, separation. You're gonna you're gonna die on <laughs> yeah. hill there. Okay. <laughs> and then he talked about Richard Gere for like 30 minutes. It was really Shut weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So getting into the cast, um, Jenny is played by Charlotte Lewis. She's got very few acting credits, mostly you know, some erotic thrillers, which makes sense. She's definitely got the look and acting for that. 
Marcelo Monduño plays Ricardo, her neighbor. He also doesn't have very many acting credits. He was in Demons. He played Bob in the film Within the Film. And he was also in Lamberto Bava's 80s Giallo Midnight Killer, which is on my watch list. I need to finally get around to that one. Uh, then Mattia Braggia is Mole, which, I mean, I, I was like, is it supposed to be Mole? But I'm like, no, that's like that Spanish or that Mexican sauce. <laughs> I, anyway, it's Mole. Um, and he's her phone worker friend. Yeah, he's a keyboard player slash telephone company operator slash philosopher. Yeah, he's he's got a lot going on. <laughs> these characters remind me a lot of the ones in Mirage who have like all yeah. these kind of weird layers to them. It's like no one's just X. Everyone is like XYZ kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's a good comparison. Um, and then Carola Stagnaro is Carmen, the photographer. She was also in Argento's Tenebrae and Opera. And then the biggest name on the cast is going to be William Berger. He plays Professor Irving Klein. He's literally in one scene in this movie before he dies. It's a great scene. It is. Uh, he was also in Spider Labyrinth, mentioned before. Uh, Kiyoma, uh, Sabata, If You Meet Sartana, Pray for Your Death, uh, Face to Face, Katsi's Hercules, Django Strikes Again. And then one I wanted to mention, because Lance, I, I, I think you should watch this one, called Day of the Cobra which is starring Franco Nero and Sybil Danning directed by Enzo Castellari, mainly because I know what a big fan you are of songs written for movies. Oh, this has a song. It opens a film and it's, how does it go? I'll, I'll insert the audio in it, but it's like, I don't give a damn. I am the Cobra. Oh shit. (laughs) Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's great. Um, so I know you would love it, but yeah, I think I can't remember where I watched that one. It's probably on YouTube. Yeah. I need to find that Castellari. Yeah. All right. And that's it for the cast and crew. We'll get more into this film right after this promo from our network. You're listening to the prescribed films podcast network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. All right, Lance, first question. How many times did you yell at Jenny? Well, I had seen your review before I, I first watched it. Okay. So I was, I, I think I had the mindset of, I'm not going to scream at the screen. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, yeah, internally, I probably yelled uh, probably about half a dozen times. Yeah. Especially when the scenes where she's in the subway and there's a lot going down and there's a lot of people walking around. Yeah. And she's just running and falling down exhausted and just not doing anything. Yeah. Like, like just, just yell, tell somebody. She's so frustrating. 
frustrating, but she she's is. so good at being frustrating. She is. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of scenes. There's especially a scene where uh, you first meet Mole and her, I guess her photographer, Agent Carmen, mm-hmm. um, at a party. And then they all kind of climb into this convertible and drive home to her apartment to drop her off. And they're all just kind of like bannering and riffing on each other and, you know, acting dramatic. And it, that whole scene is like felt feels very real and very, I was like, you know, this Charlotte Lewis has got something. I think Diodato made the right decision with her. Yeah. I think he did make the right decision for this movie, but it's also not something where I actively want to seek out anything else that she's been in. That's true. I mean, she's a very beautiful woman. Yeah. Uh, there are some, there are some scenes there's some nudity scenes and stuff, but yeah, I don't, her performance don't, doesn't like want me to seek out her whole filmography. Unless Diodato's directing. I mean, yeah, then. But. I mean, not in 2016, though. <laughs> <laughs> Do a shot-by-shot remake of Dial Help oh. with the same cast <laughs> if you're still alive. I don't know if you can just capture the magic of it because there is, there is some fucking nonsense in this movie that is why I... So first watch, I gave it three stars. And then rewatch, I was like, no, this like this brings the weird. So three and a, I bumped it up three and a Me half. too. Same thing. But like, first and foremost is the fact that Jenny can't stay away from the phone, even though she knows this is the source of danger, no matter what. And like, I yelled at her like first time. I didn't, I didn't yell as much the second time because I had already gotten my yells out the first time I watched. <laughs> but like, She's literally told, like, stay away from the phone. And then there's, we'll talk about, like, the airport scene where, like, she gets a call over the speaker. And they're like, oh, you've got a call at the fucking information desk. And she's like, oh, what's my phone call? And I'm like, you literally already know that the phone is the problem. And, like. She even says it. Like, the phone wants to kill me or something. And, like, she gets home and she's sitting on her bed and her phone's been unplugged. And this is after all these traumatic things have happened to her. And she's like, oh, I should plug my phone back. I'm like. I, I do. I, I feel like this has it's some of the scenes like that where it almost feels like, you know, I don't think she's just stupid. I feel like the phone and this negative energy, this force coming from the phone is controlling her in yeah. a lot of aspects, just like how it controlled Ricardo to almost jump off the terrace. Yeah, there there is that element of it being able to put people in a trance like with Ricardo and he does it with her as well in like another ridiculous scene where it puts her in a trance and she puts on all this lingerie and then starts like before before she gets in a bath she puts on her best lingerie oh yeah best lingerie and then she's rubbing the phone all over herself and and in the scenes like that where I'm just picturing Ruggiero directing her and saying to her like you know Charlotte, make love to the phone. You know, it's just like, I mean, yeah. Oh my God. And then she, she, so she's writhing around with the phone and then she gets in the (laughs) bathtub and like the water is green for some reason. I'm assuming must be a bath bomb. I hope that was a bath bomb. Yeah. Bubble bath or something, but she's writhing around in the, in the bathtub and, and then she wakes, you know, she, she gets snapped out of it by Ricardo And she gets out and then the phone like smashes through the glass and like goes into the tub, which, you know, I thought the phone spirit was in love with her. So why is it trying to, I guess it got mad at her for like breaking, breaking the fantasy or something. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she did. Yeah. He did. She didn't go all the way and he's upset. Maybe. Or yeah. I don't know. 
that scene though is, is insane. Um, there's another scene too, where the phone like literally fucks her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, with like the wind blowing, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's hot. I'm as turned on as Jenny is watching this, <laughs> but then it, there's no like resolution to it. It's just like, it's happening and it's, you know, the wind's blowing. She's rubbing the phone all over her. And then you just cut to like Ricardo in the library. Yeah. And then the next scene, it's like her looking for Ricardo. It's yeah. like, well, how did she wake up and snap out and realize what am I doing? Or yeah. I wish there was a, I wish there was a conclusion to right. that scene. Did she wipe the phone off after she was done? Yeah. I did mean? she clean up her mess? <laughs> did, did, you know, is that why she pulled the phone out later? Cause she realized she didn't clean it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> like the, the, the scene where uh, she's in the bathtub too, though. It's, it's frustrating because like, I mean, I know she's in a trance or whatever, but Ricardo, I mean, he's, you know, he's got to be the guy to like investigate and figure out the problem because she's clearly not smart enough to do it on her own. But, you know, I'm frustrated at her. Like Ricardo is in the kitchen making you PB and J sandwiches. And, you know, later when your apartment catches on fire, he goes back to rescue his dog. Ricardo's a stand up guy. Maybe you should give him some more attention. I mean, she finally does at the end, right. but like up until then I'm like, Anyway, I would just I wanted her her to like see Ricardo for the good guy that he was much sooner than she did. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out like because the whole concept of this movie is obviously weird and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but when you like take a step back and like I like I did, you kind of realize that it's uh, that it is kind of groundbreaking where you get this inanimate object mm-hmm. and it becomes a serial killer. More or less. And I think it opened the door to like a lot of, you see that a lot with like low budget DIY filmmakers nowadays. Yeah. You know, carousel rubber, which you, you've seen, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, Isn't, there's a movie called like killer sofa. I've never killer seen, sofa. Yeah. I've I, never seen it. So I'm just assuming that the sofa kills people by yeah, itself. Like it's a cherry it. from Pee Wee's big playhouse, <laughs> but it just eats people. Um, but yeah, and I feel like it's it, maybe that's why Diodato was so like compelled and drawn to this story, and he has a, a you know a fond memory of making it because it is so original and so absurd. Yeah, that I don't know, it, you just you fall in love with it. Yeah, I think my my absolute favorite of this though, or I get I mean I don't know if you can call it a character, but the phone is my favorite character, especially when it starts moving by itself. And it has the point of view. Yes. <laughs> The point of view shots. It goes upstairs. It, <laughs> they're my favorite one of that though is it's it's at the um the photography studio and there's this one like it's shot and it like seems to almost like peek around the <laughs> yeah. corner. Oh my god, I laugh so hard. Yeah, that whole point of view and even like you know the people lose like Ricardo losing control, uh it, that reminded me of a lot of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. Like how everything is just nothing really makes sense. And these characters are, you know, walking in their sleep Mm -hmm. more more or less. Uh, But the point of view too, like that humorous aspect, it just reminded me of the sequels, mostly like part three. I can see that for sure. Yeah. But I do love the whole concept of, of the phone. Like at first I felt like, Oh, this is way more effective in the eighties because everybody has landlines, you know, and, Mm -hmm. When you when you need help, you call for help. That's your only kind of source. If you're alone in a building or you're mm-hmm. somewhere, you need the phone. And if the phone's trying to kill you, it's a scary situation. Yeah. 
And then I was like, no, it's still kind of effective, right? But right now it'd be cell phones kind of like, you know, taking over people or the right. internet is just kind of running everybody's life. So the whole concept, I was just, like you said, the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, I can get over like all these dumb aspects. But the second time I watched it, I realized how weird it was and it was going. Yeah. Um, and it, it does it so well that I, I had to bump up my rating too. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned earlier that you thought maybe like, she was being compelled to plug her phone back in or to keep using the phone by the phone itself. And, and I don't know if I'm giving too much credit here, but my thought of it was it was sort of mirroring the way that kids are today and how they're anchored to their phones. And like, they literally can't like live without them. And she seemed to me to be that kind of person, especially in the opening where like every scene was her stopping at a payphone to try to reach Marco Right. Which also I thought was like a missed opportunity for a really good gag where she'd call like Marco, Marco. And then the other line didn't say Polo. Polo. (laughs) I love you, Jenny. (laughs) But I mean, I kind of looked at it like she's so obsessed with like her phone already. And maybe, maybe even that's why the phone fell in love with her because he saw like it saw, I don't, I'm, I'm, anthropomorphizing this phone, but I mean, it's in love with her essentially. Like that's what Diodato claimed the story was about. So yeah, no, yeah, I, I, yeah, I get that totally. Like it, and it is kind of like a foreshadowing of how people rely so much and are addicted to their electronic devices. Mm -hmm. And you do get that from Ginny. Like I'm so obsessed with getting a hold of Marco and talking to him and hearing his voice and just connecting with him that, you know, no matter how scary the phone is, I need to plug it in. Yeah. Like that is the drive. But yeah, I mean, the whole, I guess the whole concept where they briefly describe what's occurring is just amazing and kind of like groundbreaking in its like <laughs> own realm. It's so it's about these negative energies. It's quickly discussed. Ne- the energies of love and hate circulate throughout the universe. And under the right conditions, they condense and concentrate themselves in a single location. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's like the office of this. uh, I I guess it's like a love line, like you said, but it's also for like suicidal and lonely people to call. Yeah. So there's a big heart on the wall and it says loneliness does not exist and trust your heart to us. So I think it's just for like anybody who's lonely to, to call in. Right. So yeah, as they kind of condense in these single locations, these negative energies, they seek a way out, apparently. And they can be so powerful as to seduce the person who has liberated them and need to find where the force is coming from in order to like shut it all down or something. Yeah. So it, it has this really great idea and the yeah. supernatural element. And even though it's just briefly hinted on, and that's you know where Professor Klein comes in, mm-hmm. that's that's what his job is. is just <laughs> tell them quickly in an airport before he <laughs> he blows up literally. <laughs> I feel like this force is infatuated and latched onto Jenny, maybe because she is so lonely because she's trying so hard to reach Marco. And that's kind of like the job of where this office was. And yeah, Yeah, it could be like 20 years. Cause like when the cleaning lady goes in, she's like, Oh, this phone hasn't rang in like 20 years. And so it could be this pent up energy from the phone and her accidentally calling the wrong number at the like it like the sort of perfect storm of coincidences that happen that you know and she happens to be extremely lonely and trying to kind of you know constantly call kind of thing so i think yeah. it's just a sort of perfect storm of elements that lead it to fall in love with 
Yeah. And then the ending, which, you know, we're kind of hopping all over the place like we usually do, but the ending, it almost feels like she saved because Ricardo's fighting so hard to save her yeah. in the end. So like love triumphs these negative forces. Oh, dare you. Now you're making it sound like a fucking insidious or what is, what's a, what's the dumb one with the Warrens, the Blumhouse movies. Uh, with the what? The, the the couple that they they exercise all the ghosts the conjuring movies oh yeah anyway those are all like they all end with like love can fucking overcome everything fuck you movies so I I <laughs> I yes Ricardo came in and he saved the day because he's a good guy he saved his dog he saved Jenny I'm gonna leave it at the just the dumb ending of her just calling again and saying something like you're free or something like I love you all you're free and I'm like oh fuck off come on movie (laughs) like that's how you resolve this and the phone like the voice on the other end is like thank you thank you Jenny (laughs) and then a shitload of like doves and pigeons fly out the window right and I'm like were the pigeons they're doing the calls like they (laughs) they were calling her and like yeah that's how like they were the now now they're the ones that are carrying the evil force, and she just opened the window, and it's spreading all it's, over the place. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it, yeah, Ricardo's character is great. I know you said you liked him, but there are so many weird characters and performances in this. Yeah, there's the bar owner, yes, who's a scene stealer, played by Cyrus Elias. Mm-hmm. Elias. That's where she goes to and for and dials. She's trying to call Marco all over the city. She stops by this place and that's where she dials the wrong number. Yeah. That's where it all starts. And this guy's just like talking to himself. Break, break bottles, break the telephone. The young kids of today, what do they want? You know, and there's a scene where later in the movie where he's eating a cookie and Ricardo's like, where is she? Where's Jenny? So maybe she's screwing somebody else. (laughs) He's great. And then Mole, I really liked Mole and his philosophy, you know, acting as the philosopher. Yeah. He's just excited energy all the time. He really fucking loves coffee. Everybody in this movie does. Oh, there's a lot of coffee in this movie. Which I guess it takes place in, where is it, Rome? or where? Is yeah, it's Rome. So, I mean, I get it. Yeah, they they love their coffee. So Yeah, and then there's uh, one more guy I have to point out is the fireman. At the- oh, God, yeah. Oh, he said I forgot about him. So her place catches on fire. Ricardo saves the dog, which yeah. is great. Saves her, saves, you know, saves, saves the day. So her place is destroyed and this fireman, this creepy fireman, it's like a minute scene. He's like, well, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? She's like, oh, I don't know. He's like, well, you can come to my place, you know, put out my fire. Basically, it's just like, (laughs) why is that in there? And why do I love it so much? (laughs) So good. (laughs) But a lot of, you know, we've got great characters, but a lot of them die. So do you have a favorite death in this? So I loved... Professor Klein's death a lot. Mm-hmm. He has a pacemaker. He's It's a short scene. He's the one who basically tells him about the negative energy because he's like this new age professor. Yeah. And she gets a phone call at the airport. You know, obviously the phone is, is now, the force is released because she answered the phone and his pacemaker blows up. Yeah. And like these... Like it, it's a great scene. Like these like giblets, like these gizzards just kind of like throw out, just <laughs> shoot out of them yeah. as he's laying on the floor. That one's probably my favorite. I have a list of kills, but I think that one was like, when that one happened, I was like, it was like in black cat when that lady's torso, yeah. I was just like, 
arms up. Give yeah. me some more of this. I think that one's probably my favorite too. Close second though is the rapist in the in the subway who gets pelted to death by coins from the payphone. Yes. That's a good I, I wanted it to be more gory, but going back to what Diodato wants. Yeah. If you really got pelted to death by coins, it probably wouldn't be that gory because you'd probably just have a bunch of bruises on you and like maybe a few impale you. Right. But like, it wouldn't just be like, you know, you covered in blood and just a fucking wreck. I yeah. Guess. It looks good. It has some gore, but yeah, not, bit, it's yeah. very subtle. But that, that dude who played the rapist, that guy was born to play a rapist. Oh in a God. Movie. Yeah. The, fin- <laughs> the minute you see him, like even when he's just going the opposite way, the first time you see him, you're like, yeah. like that dude, sex I, that's predator. That would have been David Hess's part. Like uh, (laughs) that dude is gross and he gets it. Yeah. I also like, I mean, the hanging of Carmen and her studio was good. Uh, I think the cleaning lady got hung. Yeah. Hanged as well. In the beginning. In the beginning. That was weird because it looks like they used a dummy for her. I couldn't tell, but like it kind of shoves her. The force (laughs) like throws her into this locker. Yeah. Yeah. Like she gets strangled and then like. Yeah, the dummy goes into the locker, which Charlotte discovers, not Charlotte, Jenny discovers later. One thing I do really like, though, going back to Carmen's, yeah. is the callback to Raiders, which I, apparently Diodato just <laughs> loves this gag. Yes, and it works. Yeah, it's um, so if you've seen Raiders, there's, and Diodato has actually said this is his favorite scene from Raiders is where they discover a, a body that's been hanged. and But before you see it, you keep hearing this song skipping. You go in and there's a body that its feet are hitting the jukebox, making the song skip. Yeah. And he does the same thing in Dial Help. Yes. Loved it. Yeah, that was a great callback. Yeah. And then I guess another kill is uh, is Mole getting electrocuted. Yeah. And he is... has like his face smashed through a window after he gets electrocuted. So yeah. little little... Deep red callback there, I guess. Yeah, there is. A, now that you say that, there's a great kill scene in Phantom of Death where there's a lot of throat stabbing in that movie. Yeah. And a lot of blood just spraying kind of like, you know, what's it? Lone Wolf and, and Cup. Of, mm-hmm. But there, there's a great, like it's, they did, they're very Italian kills because there's a lot of smashing the heads through windows and stuff. And it's not like the killer doing it, but it's the victims in such, you know, state of like shock. They throw them so their head through a window. Yeah. So I always love when that happens. Yeah. Also RAP to Jenny's fish. Yeah. Which, so yeah, she, she gets home and this is early in the movie. She gets home, she picks up the phone. It's making just weird noises on the other end and she hangs up and then she just like talks to her fish in the fish tank for a second and she kisses the fish tank. Yeah. And apparently phone thing guy does not like that. And so it electrocutes or boils yeah, it I does some sort of something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it cooks the fish like yeah. in some. And if you look at the tank, maybe it's just me. I've never. I had like Cody and I had like two little gold fish when we were young that yeah. lived for like a couple of days. They were named Goldie and Gus. <laughs> but uh, as soon as I saw that fish tank, I'm like, she needs to clean that water. Yeah, it's, like maybe that's why they died. Maybe. But now, when she kisses the the fish tank, I was like, that's cute. That's, yeah, <laughs> those are her pets. <laughs> yeah, but. You know, she actually killed them because she kissed the fish tank. She did. And she tries to explain it to that officer in that little square area. Oh, my God. Why would you try? Like, I I mean, why would you even try to explain that? She's like, I know how this sounds. I'm like, if you know how it fucking sounds, then don't try to explain it to a police officer 
who also barely speaks English. Yeah. <laughs> like she started off well. She's like, two of my friends were murdered. Um, and then she starts blurting out. Yeah, then I think the phone's trying to kill me and my fish died. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing, Jenny? Come on. Just focus. be like, there's a dead body in the subway. Start with that. And then we can go from there. <laughs> right. Then we'll deal with your boiling fish and, you know, your phone masturbation uh, <laughs> sessions. <laughs> Just leave it alone. Oh, this movie. All right. Um, anything else you got that you want to touch? I did. Yeah. There's a quick scene too. After the fire, they go into this bar and she has, she still has her lingerie on straight after the, you know, straight after the bath scene and she just has an overcoat over it. Yeah. So her and Ricardo go there and they go into this bar and there's like this jazz flutist that's playing. And the melody sounds just like, uh, something tells me I'm into something good. Okay. That's what your review was. I'm like, this is, this jazz flutist is like, it's putting like some competition for Ron Burgundy from Anchorman. (laughs) I want to see them have a jazz flute off or whatever it's called. (laughs) Anything else? Yeah. I did want to point out (laughs) the first time I watched this, Mm -hmm. I, one of my first notes at the end was like the last 15 minutes of this are perfection. Like it's, as soon as Jenny Jenny leaves that bar where that flutist is playing, the band's playing everything, the camera work, the music, the lighting, the sound effects, the, the practical effects, the tension to me, it was just turned like next, it's next level. It's mm-hmm. turned to 10. And then on a weird rewatch, I was like, you know what? This thing just starts at fucking 10. Like this is, <laughs> that's why I write, I gave it a higher rating. I'm like, from the start, it's the weird, like the weirdness overload is, is too much to take for most people. Yeah, so I rec- I've seen some reviews. I think Adam actually reviewed it. He did, um, yeah. And I think he said, like, I don't know if I'll rewatch this again. Yeah. I would. Like, I think it, the rewatch is better. You get through your first initial reaction of screaming at how dumb Jenny is. Yes. And how absurd just the whole plot and the whole idea is. But then it ends, and you're like, okay, that's really weird. I respect what it went goes for. And then you watch it again, and you're like, I know, I, I know exactly what it's going for. Like, this is to just make you feel and question the world yes. and ideas. Like <laughs> why do people do this? And it, I love it. Yeah. I, I definitely think this improves on a rewatch. Um, I would recommend it. It's obviously it's not for everyone. If you're already a fan of Italian horror, you should already be in, I think. Yeah. What would you do for a double feature on this one, Lance? So I'm going to stick there, a lot of movies came to mind. Mm-hmm. One was a short, which, you know, won't, won't be the, my d- double feature pick. But remember that short? It's a student film by S.S. Wilson, who went on to direct some of the Tremors sequels. But it's called Recorded Live, 1975. It played at the first Agfadrome. Oh, yeah. And it's like an eight-minute short where basically these videotape r- reels or film reels, they come to life and they devour the main character. Yeah. And there's a scene in Dial Help uh, at the end where – you know, Jenny's like tied up by film and cords and stuff like yeah. that. So it kind of like, it, it, and then like the film starts typing out letters and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I think like that would be great just like in the middle of the two. Yeah. Cause that, that I, I was reminded of that a lot while watching this, but I'm sticking with the wild concept of an inanimate object coming to life. Um, one that you would least expect to be a killer. So I have to go with Deathbed, the bed that eats. 
classic. 1977. <laughs> written and directed by George Barry. Uh, I think the title kind of says it all. You know exactly what it's about. It's like, I'm sure we can guess what Killer Soap is about. Yeah. But uh, I'm pulling from Letterboxd. Uh, at the edge of a grand estate near a crumbling old mansion lies a strange stone building with just a single room. In the room, there lies a bed born of demonic power. The bed seeks the flesh, blood, and life essence of unwary travelers. Three pretty girls arrive on vacation, searching for a place to spend the night. Instead, they tumble into nightmares and the cruel, insatiable hunger of the bed. So, I love this movie so much. I, I, I know this is like, you're either like a huge fan of this movie or you're on yeah. the other side of it where you're on like the riff tracks or whatever side of it who are like, oh, it's, you know, it's one of the best so bad it's good. No, it's no. genius. It and, is. And this is before, like, I think, I do think Dial Help has like some groundbreaking elements, but like this might be the first inanimate object, especially something so stupid like a bed. And I guess I'll throw out like the cars and stuff, killing movies. And yeah. Stuff. Like Christine But this is 1970. Is that what I said? It was Deathbed? Deathbed, I think it's 77. Okay. So yeah, there might be like the car might be earlier, but yeah, I first saw this at Terror Tuesday in 2018 and I was just... I fell in love with it. It's on YouTube, but there's a Blu-ray from Cold Epics. I think mm -hmm. Vinegar Syndrome might sell it. Their partner labels, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I got it. I have it though, but I don't remember where I got it from. Yeah. I looked at the special features and it has like great like behind the scenes stuff, audio commentary from the director, uh, uh, George Barry and Stephen Thrower. So yeah. Awesome. Deathbed, the bed that eats. That's perfect. What's yours? So I was thinking more in the, I, I obviously the inanimate object one is great. I think Adam even brought that up in his review too. Um, mm -hmm. But I was thinking along the lines of Scofer, like a phone murder double feature. And there's a lot to pick from when there, I mean, that's kind of its own subgenre within horror almost yeah. now, like nine, seven, six evil party line. There's uh, you could even look at something like when a stranger calls or black Christmas yeah. where like phone calls are playing an integral part of like what's to come. Or even there's the, I know you don't like J horror very much, but pulse from 2000. Yeah. That's more like the internet like thing. Yeah. But, uh, it's kind of similar. Yeah. I could, yeah, definitely. It could go like that, especially in modern age too. There's call me from 1988. There's this one that I watched um, that I was thinking, I was thinking, oh, I might pick this, but I wanted to watch it first. It was called The Phone Call from 1989. And it's about a guy who calls a sex line on purpose, not on accident like <laughs> Jenny did, but he dials the wrong number. He gets the male for male instead of male for female. And this is 1989. So of course he gets upset because the guy he's talking to has a very feminine voice. So he thinks he's talking to a female for a little bit and they start the conversation. And then he realizes like, Oh, this is a guy I'm talking to. And he gets really upset and he says some awful things to this person. So that guy starts stalking him and basically demanding an apology. So <laughs> it's got the element of like, kind of like the stupidity level. It's like, if you just fucking apologize, like he asked the first time he confronted you, none of this shit would have ever happened, but he doesn't just like Jenny, who you're like, just stay away from the phone. Right. But that's not my pick. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Like it's, it's not super great, but anyway, so I ended up picking uh, another one. This was one of my June exploitation movies from last year, murder by phone, uh, AKA bells from 1982. 
Now, it doesn't have the supernatural element of dial help, but is instead about a disgruntled employee who sets up a device connected to phones that whenever a person answers, an amplified sound kills them on the other end. So it's also a very stupid premise. Yeah. Um, but it does take itself a lot more seriously than dial help. So it's tonally a lot different. So I think it would still work in a double, you know, double phone feature. Yeah, that sounds good. For that. So uh, Murder by Phone 1982, that's on YouTube. Nice. All right, Lance, next movie. Next pick. Okay, so watching all these Diodato jams, I, you know, I was more sucked in, I guess more so. I'm always sucked in. We're all, we love our Italian horror. But I'm sticking with Italian horror for this next Ooh, pick. Yay. <laughs> Completely different tone, though. Like through and through the atmosphere, the subject matter. Okay. Uh, maybe not so different in the overall weirdness, though. Uh, I'm picking uh, Giulio Questi's Arcana from 1972. I don't know this one. It's about a widowed mother who runs a fortune-telling business uh, with the help of her creepy son, mm-hmm. uh, and they work out of their apartment. The mother obviously does this tarot card reading, clairvoyant bit as a means to make money, hoping to convince and scam wealthy men and women to schedule and pay for regular visits just so her and her son can live a better life and get a nice place. But the creepy son, however, believes his mother knows the true secrets of the black arts and spiritualism. And he forces her to reveal these secrets. And he finds that he's actually the powerful one in the family Mm -hmm. and his power or whatever it is uh, he possesses begins having an effect on his mother, her clients, the neighborhood, pretty much beyond like he's a powerful sorcerer kind of. So Arcana will, will try some people's patience for sure. Like maybe it's similar to, to dial help like that. <laughs> You'll know like within the first 15 minutes if this movie's like for you. Oh, okay. And if it is, I think you're, you know, you're, you're in for a wild ride. If you feel like you're not, you're not clicking with it or vibing with it in the first 15 minutes or so, you're probably going to hate it, but it currently has 330 views on Letterboxd. It's on YouTube. There are a few options on YouTube, but search Arcana, A-R-C-A-N-A. English subs. That's the good one that pops up. So yeah, a little bit of Questy's uh, Arcana. Oh, he did uh, Death Laid an Egg. Yeah. Sick. Okay. Yeah, there's some good movies to join, uh, to do, uh, to watch along with it. He only, I think this was like his third and final film, maybe feature film. What was his other one he did? Oh yeah. Kill, If You Live, Shoot. Yeah. I think those are his, we'll we'll get into his filmography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, this is... Right. Okay. Oh, Laird gave it four stars. Oh, yeah. I mean, I trust Laird more than you because you gave like five stars to Dollman. So I gave four stars to Dollman. Fine, whatever. Four stars to Dollman. It's justified. (laughs) Anything under four four stars for Albert Pion's Dollman just doesn't make sense. (sighs) Whatever. Erica. Mm -hmm. All right. If you're not already, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Unsung Horrors. You can follow me on Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram at Hex Massacre. You can find me on Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram at El Shivey. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and be wary of your phones. See you next time. Bye. Bye.
Hey, it's Death by Video. I'm Phil. I'm Kit. And I'm Graham saying welcome to our podcast full of merry movie mayhem. Ever wonder what an Irish kung fu movie would look like? It's called Fatal Deviation, and we covered it. Ever wonder what a movie about a thousand cats would look like? It's called Night of a Thousand Cats, and we covered it. And it stars Hugo Stiglitz. Listen to Death by Video to hear us discuss and dissect some of the weirdest, wildest, and wackiest films ever made. All this and more on Death by Video! Woo!